0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. As Al said, and for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bentley Crawford. I'm the church administrator here at Palm Vista. And what we've been doing the last few months is we've been going through the book of Ephesians, just preaching from it, and it's been glorious. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be looking at Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 6. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles and turn there with me at this point. And if you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to get up and grab one. We have some in the back here in Spanish and English. Also, if you have one uh, on your phone, please feel free to use that as well. Because we're not gathered here this morning to to hear from me. We're gathered here to hear from God this morning. And He's speaking to us from His Word, the Bible. So let's set our eyes on the text and, and let's get into what He is saying. And so let me read for you. Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Amen. Well, would you pray with me for God's help this morning? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we confess how easy it is for us to arrive here on Sunday mornings, Lord. More interested in other things than meeting with you. Interested in the, in the people we're going to see. The task we need to do. Or maybe just in maintaining appearances. Or just getting through the service. Lord, forgive us. We ask now that you would focus our minds and hearts on yourself, God. That you would give us ears to hear. And eyes to see. And minds to understand. And hearts to know you, Lord, this morning. And what you are saying to us. Oh God, build your church this morning. Holy Spirit, work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each of us here has had to make numerous choices over the course of our lives. We've had to decide which path we'll choose on a variety of issues, some of them larger scale, like where am I going to college? Where am I going to live? Should I pursue that job or or take that promotion? And then many of them on a smaller scale, like which internet provider am I going to go with or where are we going to eat today? (laughs) Regardless of the types of decisions that we've made, the fact remains that, that we've all had to make choices. We've had to weigh the options. We've had to follow a certain path. Many times, though, we've had to make these decisions without knowing all the details, without knowing exactly where the path is going to lead. I'm sure there's many of us who looking back we would have made certain decisions differently. Like I, I wish I would have taken that job opportunity or man, I shouldn't have eaten that. <laughs> but in our passage today, Paul is showing us a fork in a road in the road. And there are two paths that we have to choose from. But he isn't leaving us in the dark as to where they lead. And to be sure, God is calling us to walk a certain path, but He's revealing to us beforehand where it is going to go. And so I believe that what He is showing us this morning is this, if you'll put my main point up on the screen, that beloved children walk in love, not lust. Beloved children walk in love, not lust. Now when this word lust is thrown out there, I realize that it's going to land on each of you a little differently. Now, some of you hear that and think, Yes, Bentley, preach it. I need help here desperately. Your mind immediately goes to the sexual side of lust. Well, friend, there is indeed a message here for you this morning. Others of you, maybe some women, may be thinking, I guess this sermon won't really affect me. You know, men are the lusters. Well, while it is true that men are more disposed to sexual temptation than women are, I believe that you'll be surprised to learn that there is a message in here for you too this morning, ladies. And then there may be others of you in here thinking, "Well, well, what's the big deal with lust? What's so wrong with it? Well, God has a message for you this morning as well, my friend. You see, while this text is definitely addressing the area of sexual immorality and lust, it also goes much farther than that. It casts its net much broader. As we will see, lust, greed... Covetousness. It affects us all in different ways. Some in the arena of sexual immorality, but others in the areas of of comfort or money, etc. God has a message for us all this morning, and He is calling us, His beloved children, to walk in love, not lust, to walk in self sacrificial love, not self indulgent lust. So let's get into this, and let's figure out what exactly God is calling us to this morning. So that brings us to point one. Point one, the love, the pattern we are to follow. Love, the pattern we are to follow. So if you'll look with me at verses one and two, in verse one, Paul says the following, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I don't know about you, but to me, this verse just comes right out of the gate swinging. Be imitators of God. When we conceive of God in our minds, there's so many awesome and wonderful and fearful things about him. How in the world are we as humans supposed to be able to imitate him? Is he calling us to do the impossible? Is this some type of tease? Isn't this cruel of God to demand this? Well, I think there are a few clues in this verse and the ones surrounding it that can really help us here. And the first, if you'll look with me, is that we are to imitate God. How? As beloved children. I really think this is one of the keys to understanding how we're going to be able to do this. If you'll remember with me, in Ephesians 1, 5, at the beginning of this series, God, in love, predestined us to be His adopted children through Jesus Christ. We weren't originally God's children. In fact, we were his enemies, but God, in his redeeming, self-sacrificing love for us, made us his children through faith in Jesus Christ. And now, as God's beloved children, we are called to imitate our Father, as any child tries to act like and imitate a loving parent. Even our sweet little daughter, Lila Grace, who's only two and a half years old, will, will imitate us. It's natural. As we love her and hug her and talk to her, she in turn begins to more and more love us and hug us and others and and talk more like us. Unfortunately, she also picks up some of our bad habits as well. You see, when Paul says that we are to imitate God as beloved children, he is speaking to our identity. Who we now are in Christ and this immediately reminds us of everything we learned in the first half of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3. Those chapters were all about who we are in Christ. And then this word, therefore, here at the beginning of our passage reminds us as well that this is not a standalone passage, nor is this a standalone sermon, but all that we've been reading, all that we've been studying, is linked together. So we must remember what he has said previously especially in the section that we're in where he's just giving us one directive after another and it's easy to forget where we've been. You see, all of Paul's exhortations or imperatives that we've seen in the last few weeks, starting with chapter four, and that we will continue to see, they're all rooted and grounded in all the indicatives of chapters one through three. For example, in 4.1, he exhorted us to live lives that are what? That are worthy of the calling we've received. And then here in this passage, in 5.1, he's urging us to be imitators of God. How? As beloved children. You see, he is urging us to live in light of what God has done for us. To be who we are. And so even at the end of the section that Al preached from last week, as Paul was giving explicit directions on what to put off and what to put on, he ended with this phrase in Ephesians 4.32. He said this, be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you see our forgiving is to be patterned after and empowered by god and christ forgiving us and so we are actually able to imitate god because of all that god has already done for us and we're called to imitate him Not as forced slaves to some intolerant tyrant, but to imitate him as beloved children. Children who have had love freely and undeservedly lavished on them. And so the question for us is this. As God's child, do we desperately want to be more like him? Are we eager to learn about who he is and how he has acted? The way that children learn to imitate their parents is by being with them, by studying them and learning from them. So do we know God's great love for us? And does that drive us to want to act more like Him? Are you spending time with Him, friends? Are you studying your Father and the way that He has acted? Listen, there are many ways that we can't even come close to imitating God. His... Creating out of nothing ability. His omniscience, or omnipotence, or omnipresence, just to name a few. And when it comes to some of his attributes that we can actually imitate, well, many times we might prefer to imitate God in his wrath. (laughs) Or his justice, you know, maybe his anger. But God is calling us here to not just generally imitate him in any way that we can think of, but he has something specific in mind. And this is it. To imitate him in his gentle, kind, forbearing, forgiving, self-sacrificing love. And we see that here. We see it looking backwards to the previous verse, as I just mentioned. And Paul makes it even more clear in the next verse, where he spells out for us exactly what he means when he calls these Ephesians to imitate God. So look with me at verse 2. And walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So God is calling us and Paul is exhorting these Ephesians to imitate God specifically through walking in love. See, Paul's exhortation here is that we would walk in love. This word walk here, it has this idea of of a life of love towards one another. It should be the regular and characteristic way that we relate to one another. And this love that we are to walk in, this love that should be an ongoing and growing characteristic in our lives, is patterned after and made possible by Christ's love for us. Read with me again in verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us. The reason why I said that it's the pattern. As well as what makes it it possible. That it's not only the pattern. But it's also the power. Is because the Greek wording here. Behind the word as. Where it says walk in love as Christ loved us. It not only carries with it this idea. This comparative idea. Of an example that we ought to follow. But it also has this idea of a causal force. Christ's love for us and His giving of Himself up for us, it's not only the pattern that we're called to follow, but it's also the power that makes it possible. It's the power that makes our pattern following possible. And so if you're asking me, Bentley, how in the world am I supposed to be able to imitate God and walk in love? The answer is, is that through the, it, it's through the power that comes to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how. And so we're going to come back to that later on. But just as Jesus' love for us and his giving of himself up for us is the power that makes our walking in love possible, it is no less also the pattern that we're called to follow in our love for one another. And so if Christ's love for us is the pattern that we ought to follow, well, then we need to dig deep into this verse 2 here and figure out exactly how it is that Christ has loved us. So look with me again at it. Verse 2, And walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So according to this verse, how did Christ love us? By giving himself up for us. He gave himself up for us. Well, this is something that we glory in and we love here at Palm Vista, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of His substitutionary death on the cross in our place. Bearing the wrath of God that we also justly deserve. But something that we may not think of as often is the mentality of Christ in all of this. What drove Him to the cross? Did God the Father force Him to it? Was He doing it in some slavish obedience to the Father? What we've seen in this verse and what we've seen earlier in Ephesians is that just as the Father has loved us, so has Jesus loved us. He himself loved us. And what is so key here is that this word gave in verse 2, it has this idea of a willing giving over of himself. Christ handed himself over to death for his people. He took the initiative. He laid down his life of his own accord. No one forced him. No one took it from him. He was the willing victim in our place. He gave himself up for us. And going even farther, Paul explains his giving up of himself this way in verse 2, a fragrant, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, this takes us back to Old Testament themes. God commanded His people Israel in the Old Testament to make all sorts of offerings under the Old Covenant. And then over and over again in books like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, He talked about these sacrificial offerings of animals as pleasing aromas. And then as you move through the Old Testament, God begins to issue rebukes to His people because sometimes they weren't even offering the prescribed sacrifices. And then at other times, they would offer the sacrifices but their heart would be far from God. And so you get statements like this one. I'll read it to you from the Lord when he rebuked Saul through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He said the following. And Samuel said, "'Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams.'" And so we see here that a sacrifice that is pleasing in God's sight is not some rote obedience and performance of duties, but it is obedience that is from the heart. Christ's sacrifice of Himself on our behalf had merit because of who He was, God, but it was pleasing in God's sight because of His self-sacrificing willingness from the heart. Christ willingly gave Himself. He didn't just give His time, or His talents, or His money, but it was a wholehearted, obedient, willing, giving over of Himself. And this, my friends, is what God is calling us to do. God is calling us to an ongoing, ever-increasing life of self-sacrificial, wholehearted, willing love for one another. And so, when things come up, when we have the opportunity to help one another, when we are acting, interacting with our friends or family, maybe even our neighbors, are we going to moan and groan about the cost that it's going to be to us? Or are we excited about the benefit that it's going to provide the other person as we willingly sacrifice our time, our comfort, our money, even our very selves? Or, are our actions more dependent on how it will affect our comfort? Like when the call comes late at night and someone needs your help. or are they dependent maybe on whether the other person deserves it or not. Like that person who has made our blacklist or just doesn't provide us mutual benefit. Are we loving in, a way, in, in, the, in the way that Christ loved us? Undeserved, free, yet costly love? I believe that God is asking us us this question this morning. However, friends, we have a problem, don't we? We often desire what we shouldn't, and we're deceived as to where things will lead. And we also experience temptation in this world and attacks from the evil one, as well as battling the lust of our flesh. And so that brings us to point two, It's the second path in our fork in the road. Will we live a life of self sacrificial love for one another, or will we follow the path of self indulgent lust? So, point two lust, the path we are to avoid. So, before we get into the text for this point, let me remind you of a story that can help us here. It's a story from Scripture, and it's found in Proverbs 7. So please would you turn there with me. Proverbs 7. See, as you turn, here's the reality, friends. Our natural desires and feelings, they're deceitful. It's true for all of us. We're all born with corrupt and deceitful desires that still linger around, even in us as Christians. Oh, things can seem so good. They can seem so enticing so satisfying on such a deep level of our being, and yet, in the end, can leave us utterly empty and cause unthinkable destruction. So this story here in Proverbs 7 that I'm about to read, it's about a man who followed a path, thinking it would lead one way, when in reality, it was leading quite another. So let me read it for you, starting in verse 6. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 6. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves in love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will return. He will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol. Going down to the chambers of death. This story illustrates for us in vivid terms the utter importance for us to know and remember what God is saying in our passage this morning. He's laid out the path that he's calling us to follow, a path, the path of self sacrificial love. However, however, God knows that by default, all of mankind doesn't live that type of life. In fact, we take the second path. And as Christians, we can still be tempted to do so. And so that's the path of self-indulgent lust. So let me read Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. This is point 2. But sexual immorality in all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, ...which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience... And so as I mentioned before, Paul here immediately draws a stark contrast with what we've just been talking about. And it's interesting, isn't it? Why would Paul move from exhorting us to live a life of self-sacrificial love to exhorting us against sexual morality, all impurity, and covetousness? Well, it seems that the answer is that what he is exhorting us against in contrast to walking in Christ-like love is walking in the perversion of love that is lust. God wants to expand or correct our view of love. So look with me again at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This phrase sexual immorality here, it's often lost on many of us today. I've had friends ask Well, Bentley, if God doesn't want us to have sex before marriage, why doesn't the Bible just come out and say it? Well, the answer is, it does right here. And anywhere else that this phrase sexual immorality is used, because what it is is a catch-all term used to describe any illegitimate sexual intercourse outside of marriage. So that means premarital sex, adulterous relationships, homosexuality, prostitution, and anything else you can think of. And then this phrase that comes after it, all impurity, well, it goes right along with it, referring to all forms of unrestrained sexual deviance. Paul is exhorting these Ephesians away from this. And for the Ephesians, well, this was a big deal. Let me read a quote from you from commentator Clinton Arnold about uh, what was going on back then. He says the following, illicit sexual activity.'" was an enormous problem for new Gentile Christians to overcome in the early church. Adulterous relationships, men sleeping with their slave girls, incest, prostitution, sacred sexual encounters in the local pagan temples, and homosexuality were all a part of everyday life. And truth be told, friends, things aren't too different for us either. We may not have pagan temples on every street corner, but other than that we have all too much in common with our Gentile friends. And yet so many in our culture seem to miss this. They decry the Bible's teachings on this issue to be outdated. Oh, well things are different now, they say. Oh, these teachings on the Bible from the Bible on marriage and sexual morality, they're no longer relevant this day and age. Oh, well, we love Jesus and we want to obey God, but they just lived in a different time back then. We're more enlightened now. Well, how can that be? Ever since the fall, men and women have had their actions determined by their commitment to natural lusts. We are no different. Sure, there has been intellectual progress, scientific discoveries, cultural advancements, and technological achievements, but the human heart remains the same. And Scripture's teaching here is as relevant as ever. So to you who are here this morning that are currently engaged in what the Bible would call a sexually immoral relationship, whether it be living with your boyfriend or girlfriend and engaging in extramarital sex or even having an adulterous relationship, God is calling you, friend, this morning to turn from it. He's calling you to turn from it. And so as Paul lists out these vices of sexual immorality And all impurity, the third thing he mentions moves him from the outward actions to their inner spring, covetousness, i.e. greed. And in this context of sexual sin, it speaks to what commentator P.T. O'Brien says, that insatiable desire to have more, even the coveting of someone else's body for selfish gratification. And so in case any of us were sitting in here thinking that somehow this exhortation didn't involve us, since we've not actually engaged in any sexually immoral actions, this last word indicts us all, for the seed of this sin is in all of us. And this is especially true for us men here, though I realize that some women may struggle with it as well. And that struggle that I speak of is with pornography. Pornography. And it's not just with pornography per se, but that desire for what is not yours. That lust for another's body. Maybe it is pornography, but maybe it's looking at non-pornographic images of others. Or looking at the people that you come in contact with in real life. But the lust is still the same. Friend, God is calling you this morning to turn from that as well. And so Paul's exhortations to these Ephesians and God's call to us is not only that we would not be involved in these things, but look at the end of the verse, but that they should not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Not only should they not be practiced, not only should they not be thought, but they should not even be named. There shouldn't even be a hint of it. It should be totally abolished from our lives. And the reason for this is that as saints, i.e. God's holy people, those who have been called in Christ to be holy and blameless, well, these things are utterly out of line with who God has called us to be. Sexually immoral actions and thoughts are completely incompatible with the kingdom of God. And so then reiterating his point in verse 4, Paul says the following, look with me. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. It's as if he's saying, well, in case you didn't get my point about it not being named among you, let me make it more clear what I mean. All of these words here, referring to ways of talking, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, in this context, they specifically refer to the realm of sexual immorality. And instead of this, God is calling us to thanksgiving. Instead of having our minds filled with worldly morality and vulgarity, are we thankful for the great gift God has given us in sex within a proper marriage relationship? Are we fighting to have that way of thinking fill our minds? You see, we help to perpetrate and promulgate sexual morality if we talk about it in filthy ways or chat about it as if it were normal or make jokes about it. One of the things that this does is it reveals that we are making light of something that God considers serious. Just as in Paul's day, so in our day, sexual morality is made light of everywhere, on the TV, in the movies, in music, in books, the overwhelming message is, do it, go for it. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's wonderful. Follow your heart. Fulfill your desires. And we don't have to look to the world for this message either because often it's coming from our own flesh as well. And so here's where the application might come home more to some of you ladies here. Although this is certainly true for us guys as well. And men, we need to lead here because often we expose ourselves to things that we shouldn't. We may not be actively involved in committing sins of sexual immorality. We may not even mention it in sinful ways. However, one thing many of us do without even realizing it is is sometimes willingly and even sometimes delightfully exposing ourselves to other people engaging in sexual sin or talking about it. We can easily watch TV shows and movies or listen to music that fills our minds with graphic images and ways of thinking that, as I mentioned earlier, are totally incompatible with the kingdom of God. We may not engage in any of the things that we watch or listen to ourselves, but we'll just sit there and allow ourselves to look on or listen in. It's like we forget to apply the very standards we apply to our lives to the things that we watch or listen to, as if the fact that it's on a screen or on the radio somehow makes it different. We would never allow many of these things to actually take place in our homes. Yet we'll turn the TV on in the living room and effectively do that very thing. We watch and laugh at the very things we might teach our kids not to do. The things we would never want them to practice. And the effects that this has on us over time are destructive. It trivializes sin. And it numbs us to its effects. And it preaches a message to our families that runs counter to what we actually want them to believe. So I wonder if God may be calling some of us, some of you this morning, to pay attention to the things that you watch or listen to. Would there be any music you listen to or any shows you watch that are actually doing more harm than good to you and your family? Now understand that that one question you may ask at this point is this. Well, Bentley, isn't this heart's teaching? Isn't this a little strict, a little ridiculous even? Why would God not, why would God want to keep us from doing something that we want? Why would he not want us to have a little entertainment, a little enjoyment? Well, we're in a culture where we can hardly conceive that something that would bring us pleasure could be bad for us. Well, I understand why you would ask that. It's difficult. But friends, the answer to my questions is that just as the man from Proverbs 7 who only saw good times ahead of him was utterly deceived, so we too don't understand how easily we can be deceived as well. And so just as when we're watching a movie and the character on the screen is heading in a direction where we, the audience, know will bring him harm, so God and His amazing patience and mercy shows us the way we should go and He warns us of the way we shouldn't go. God's warnings and commandments in Scripture are the very opposite of oppressive and burdensome. They are expressions of His grace and love for us. And so that's where Paul moves in verses 5 and 6. So let me read it for you. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now these are two severe warnings. Paul is constantly warning his readers about sexual morality because God knew this was and would be a particular struggle for the Ephesians and all who would read this letter in every age. The church has always been plagued with some degree of temptation to sexual morality, And Paul's constant warnings demonstrate that this is no light issue. Everything is on the line. So here we have the reason why God would urge that we not even name or talk or joke about these things in any vulgar or lighthearted way because they are utterly serious and the consequences are dire. So look at how he begins verse 5 again. He wants us to be sure, for you may be sure of this. He knows that the world, our flesh, and the spiritual forces of evil would dissuade us from thinking that there are any consequences tied to being sexually immoral. And what it is that we may be sure of is that, look with me at the end of verse 5, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then in verse 6, he wants us to not be deceived. Look at it. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Once again, he is adamant that we not capitulate to the lies of the world, our flesh, and the spiritual forces of evil, which would have us believe that there are no bad consequences for engaging in these actions. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So look at these two consequences for those who are sexually immoral or impure or who are covetous. Number one, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then number two, it's because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Each of these consequences are horrific. And they have both a present and a future application. You see, generally this phrase, kingdom of Christ... It's used when speaking of the present reign of Christ now on earth in this present age. And then this phrase, kingdom of God, is used when speaking of the future with God in eternity. And also then when speaking of God's wrath in verse 6, Paul says that it comes upon the sons of disobedience. It has this idea that it is coming now and that it will come in the future the consequences will already begin to be experienced in this life to a degree and unspeakably more so in the life to come. So friends, I believe that there is a message for at least three groups of us this morning. For those of you who are here, who are currently engaged in sexual morality, who don't see a problem with it, maybe you even think that God condones it. I believe that God's message to you this morning is that he does not condone it. Indeed, if you persist in it, not only will you not have a share of Christ's kingdom now and no hope of God's kingdom in the future, but you will also experience in this life to a degree and infinitely more so in the next, the burning wrath of God executed for all of eternity. Please listen to him. Heed His warnings and turn from your sin. It's not too late. Repent and believe the gospel of His Son and receive the hope of eternal life. And know the peace with God that comes through Jesus taking the wrath you deserve. Oh, friends, listen to His Word and don't be deceived any longer. And then secondly, to those of you who have committed sins of sexual immorality, In the past, yet you find yourself continually plagued with guilt now over what happened then. I want you to look carefully at the text, dear friend, in verse 5. It says in verse 5 that everyone who is sexually immoral. It's a present definition. Listen, if you have confessed your sin to God, His Son's blood covers it. And it no longer defines you. These consequences, they're no longer in your future. God loves you. He is your Father, and He has forgiven you of all your sin. Listen, it is washed away. You are God's child now, and He is calling you to continue to walk on this path of self-sacrificial love. Don't turn back. And then thirdly, to the many of us in here, who own our sin. You've acknowledged it before God, but you continue to battle it. You're battling sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness day in and day out. Heed God's warnings. They are part of His means to preserve you from this sin. Listen, listen, Though your thoughts may deceive you, though your hearts may burn with passion, though the world may tell you otherwise, though everything around you and within you may yell for these things to be completely good and normal, you may be sure that the end of those things are not pleasure, but they're destruction. So don't do it. Turn from it, friend. Turn from your pornography watching. Turn from your lusting. You are disregarding God And you're dishonoring those you lust after. Let the story from Proverbs 7 persuade you. Let me read it again, starting at verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. Things seem so good. But listen to what is really happening. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Listen, her house is not the way to pleasure, But it is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Oh, I know that temptation can seem to look and taste so good, but things are not what they seem. That path is the way to death. Turn from it, my friend. God has given you the power to do so. And that brings us to our conclusion for this message. Listen, friends. God is calling us to live a life of love, not lust. God's beloved children walk in love, not lust. You see, I want to make it abundantly clear this morning that this message is about more than simply not lusting. Engaging in sexually immoral actions or thoughts is simply the most natural overflow of a self-indulgent life. God is not simply calling us away from that, but He is calling us into something else. He is calling us to a life of self-sacrificial love for one another. This is not simply a call away from sexual temptation and lust and then into a right understanding of sex within a marriage relationship. No, the comparison is is in much broader terms. And this is where this message really comes home to each one of us. Because we all, by nature, we want to live for ourselves. We want to do what we want to do. And we don't like to do the things that are hard or that provide us no clear benefit. So will we live lives of self-sacrificial love for one another or will we drift along in greedy self-indulgence? When a situation comes up where someone needs our help, will we be more concerned with the cost that it is to us? the discomfort that it brings to us, or will we be more concerned with the good that it will bring to that person? You see, God is calling us this morning to be givers instead of takers. And so we end where we started. Church, this is where the life is. I don't want us to leave here thinking of only what we can't do, but also of what God is calling us into. You see, for as we lay down our lives for one another, in self-sacrificial love, we're actually moving away from lust. And there's really no neutral ground here. Any given day, in any given situation, we'll either be drifting towards greedy self-indulgence, or we'll be heading towards loving self-sacrifice. So which path will we choose to walk down, friends? Which path will we choose? And so the final question, that's no doubt on many of our minds at this point is, okay, okay, well, how do I do this? This seems like quite a large task. How in the world can I do this day in, day out? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the key is found in verses 1 and 2. We're we're called to imitate God. How? As beloved children. God loves us. And as we get to know more of His love for us in Christ, it actually makes us want to be more like Him. And then... In verse 2, we saw that Christ's love for us and His giving of Himself up for us, it's not only the pattern we're called to follow, but it is also the power that makes it possible. He has given us the power, friends. So if you want to know how you can turn from living a life of lust to living a life of love, look to Jesus. And one of the things that we saw in this passage was this movement from the outer fruit to the inner root. This bad inner root of greed and covetousness spills out into outward actions of lust and sexual immorality. And so listen, as we fill our minds and hearts with the love of Jesus, that inner root is transformed by the Holy Spirit and it's filled with the self-sacrificial love of Christ on our behalf. And then what flows out instead of self-indulgent lust is self-sacrificial love that is made possible by and patterned after the love of Jesus for us. So how can we fill our minds with this love? How can we fill our hearts with it? How can we appropriate this power? Well, here's what we can do. We can read his word. We can get it in our mind, set our eyes on it every day, meditate on it, and ask God for insight. Or we can pray to Him. We can cast our cares and our burdens on our Father and tell Him our sin and weaknesses and ask Him for His forgiveness and power, experiencing His kind love for us. And then we can gather with His church. We can come and worship Him each Sunday. We can listen to His Word being preached. We can sing to Him in song. Spending time with Christian friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, let us live a life of self-giving, self-sacrificial love for one another in the power of Christ. Let's do it. So friends, at this time, I'd like to transition uh, and ask the worship team to to come on up uh, as we respond to God through song. And as I do so, I'd like to read to you a little bit of the song that we're going to sing. It's the last song we sang at the beginning. It's called, A Servant for Your Glory. Let me read some of the verses to you. Verse 1 is kind of the pattern. The king of all creation, cloaked as God in human form. Listen, a servant he became. In his submission, suffered death humiliated till the end a dreadful death my savior died and then kind of the next couple of verses the power in his great love he sent his only son to redeem my sinful soul christ exemplified a grace beyond compare gave his life to save my own and then the chorus this is our plea friends Put in me the mind that lives in Jesus Christ. Make me a servant for your glory. I will take my cross and follow you, my God. Make me a servant for your glory. And then the second verses start the same way. I'll read the first one. Eternal God and sovereign King, who's crowned with glory and majesty, listen, has washed my feet. He carried my iniquities bore the wrath reserved for me, the spotless lamb crucified. So friends, as we've seen in this passage, God is calling us to turn from living lives of self-indulgent lust, but He's not just calling us to stop doing one thing. He's calling us to start doing something else. He's calling us to live lives of self-sacrificial love day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. But as we are confronted with this call, we can feel so helpless to change, can't we? So let's sing out this song to the Lord. Let's recount with shouts of joy the astonishing pattern of love that our Lord has shown. Let's glory in the power that God has given us and let's cry out, let's plead, let's beg God to give us the mind, the self-sacrificial loving mentality of Christ. Let's sing out to Him. And before we do so, let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, God, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for giving your life for mine. Oh, Lord, we need your help now. Help to turn from our self-indulgent lust. Help to live lives of self-sacrificial love. Oh, God, we confess that we often don't want to die to ourselves. Instead, we often want to please ourselves. Oh, God. Help us to see beyond the surface. Because so often when we're faced with the choice between self-indulgent lust or self-sacrificial love, Lord, all we see is pleasure on the one hand and cost on the other. Help us to see beyond the surface, Lord. Put the mind of Christ in us, we pray. Give us the mentality that was in Jesus who laid down His very life for us. Oh God, thank You, Lord, for the forgiveness You have purchased with your blood. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who is in us now to powerfully change us and make us like Christ. Oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing. Well, may God bless you and may He grant His Word to bear fruit in you. May He grant you to, to have the mind of Christ And may He grant you to walk in self-sacrificial love instead of self-indulgent lust. Walk in love, my friends, and go in the power of Christ. You're dismissed.